2: Welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. You'll hear our weekly radio show, V Sound here, as well as the occasional story curated recently from our audio library at thirdcoastfestival.org. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit organization whose livelihood depends in part on support from listeners like you. To find out how you can help or to check out all of the cool stuff we do apart from our radio show, visit our website thirdcoastfestival.org thanks and enjoy the podcast
3: okay let's see what we have here
2: Hmm, oops from the third coast
3: international audio festival in chicago i'm gwen maxi craigslist and this is resound jobs housing personals no okay Crex Community, Lost and Found,
4: that's the one. Lost White Parakeet, last seen flying towards the Fox River from Randall Road in South Elgin. Her family and other parakeet friends misses her.
3: Lost Blackberry, Lost Jesus Bracelet. Mm. ReSound is a remix of radio stories, documentaries, music, found sound, and sound bites we find all over the world.
5: I lost an envelope
3: of rent money this weekend. Good luck on that one. I know this is a long shot, but I'm hoping someone has found it. On the air, on the web, into the void, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on Resound. Found.
5: Lady's wallet. Trying to locate my father, who is named John.
3: Lost cat, weird leg, bad eyes. (laughs) Responds to the name Yoda. (laughs) He's very old and I'm sure very scared. If you find him, please call blah blah blah. Oh... These are very sad. You can find almost anything in the lost and found, but there are some things you will never see in those listings. Lost love, lost bearings, found dignity. These are hard for some of us to even perceive, let alone retrieve. And putting a price on them? Forget about it. Today on ReSound, searching for the intangible. What's been lost and what might be found. Stay with us. Cultures are easy to lose, by force, by dispersion, by neglect. And bringing an entire culture back from the brink is a Herculean task. But one good place to start is the language. For nearly a thousand years, the Hopi people have lived on the same three mesas in northern Arizona. And while they have deep roots there, their language has been gradually fading away.
6: Since the beginning, we have been taught about the end. When our language dies we are told that the world will begin dying with it.
7: We have a prophecy that one night, lost brothers will awaken from the dead. Then they'll draw a line from one end of the village to the other. One by one, they will line us up, and then they will ask us, "Um are you Hopi? Can you speak the Hopi language? And if we cannot respond back and forth in Hopi, they will place us on the right side of the line. And soon after that, they will cut our throats. This is what we call our judgment day.
6: This is our school, the Hopi Junior Senior High School. Our Hopi language is dying, and me and most of my friends are struggling to speak it.
2: When I talk to my friends, we speak English. (laughs) We don't, like, speak our Hopi language, or because some of my friends aren't Hopi, others are, but they don't really know how to speak it.
6: I'm just terrified that if I don't speak, like right now, everything that I know that I've been doing won't really matter because I lost my culture and my language already.
8: It's a scary thought that our culture is all dependent on our generation, our culture's dying and there's nothing we can do to save it because nobody wants to take the time to learn our language. It's going to have no significance, it's not going to have any importance after all our elders are gone.
6: This problem isn't new to our generation.
8: I'm
9: 66 years old.
6: Hope you stop learning our language.
9: I wasn't allowed to speak my
6: language. When they were punished for speaking it in schools.
9: You're afraid, you're ashamed and you're crying and they tell you to stop crying and hit you. But how can you stop crying when they hit you?
6: That's what happened to my grandmother, Eloise, Eloise Komalastua
9: Kuchumtua. And I'm Austin us grandma.
6: She stopped teaching her children...
9: I regret it now.
6: ...to protect them from suffering the same humiliation that she had to endure when she was in school.
9: I remember holding on to a fence, just crying. And then my dad would be dragging me to the classroom. It was so scary to sit there. That's what happened to me. That's why I didn't teach my kids.
6: Remember the part, remember when I uh, we were sitting there doing laundry and I asked you, how do you say this? How do you say that? What's the word for up, down? Where did you go? Things like that.
9: Oh, yeah. And I told him, even if you can't pronounce it right, at least I'll know what you're trying to say. You know, that way um, I can help you. I can correct you. I just hope you don't die. Don't die, because... That's the only thing we have right now, is our language and our ceremonies. But it's not too late. It's not too late.
10: There's two kind of people here. There's one to destroy everything of Hopi, even the language, and then there's the others to preserve it.
6: This is Leon Carew. I am 48 years old. He is the spokesperson for the religious leaders of the Masangnavi village. If you want to lose the language, then you don't learn it. You don't speak
10: it. You don't teach it on to the next one.
6: Lots of young people don't want to speak the language in front of their elders because they say the elders make fun of them.
7: It's scary when you're trying to talk to older people, I guess, because they tease a lot. And we take it personally, and we don't want to speak it no more.
10: Sometimes the Hopi will say, making fun of you should also get you to say, okay, I'm going to better myself. Even though if the children are having a hard time, they shouldn't stop because they're the ones that are going to carry this language on. It's really no choice, unless we want to,
6: you know, forget who we are. At our school, there's only one student who is fluent in Hopi.
2: His name is Arai Poli And
6: everyone calls him Hopi boy.
7: Hopi boy. Hopi boy. You never forget a language that you first learn.
6: The thing that makes Aorai different from everyone else is that his parents forced him to speak Hopi.
7: I learned the language from my parents. When I was just a little baby, that's all he talked to me in was Hopi. And Hopi was supposed to be the first language you'll ever learn.
2: Some people made fun of Alroy when we were younger because he had a traditional haircut and spoke the language so well.
7: Number one, Hopi boy coming through the door. I guess they admired me, but I thought they were, like, teasing me.
6: I, I kind of looked up to him because he knew Hopi and I started to learn words from him and I started learning, learning, learning and learning. It just started popping in my head and I started getting an idea of what people were talking about.
7: Later on as I wondered, why be like them when I can be myself and be different? And then I did that and I became a role model. ha,
6: Oh-ha. oh ha. The land of the Hopi is the center of the universe. We have lived on these three mesas for generations. And all that while, our people have been speaking the Hopi language. But now everybody says our language is dying.
3: That was Last Words from Hopi High, produced by Brett Myers of Youth Media International, with the students of Hopi High in Keems Canyon, Arizona. To see pictures of some of the Hopi High students, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Much has been written about lost youth. Among my favorite quips, inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. At the Lillian Booth home in New Jersey, inside every quote-unquote old person, there's a Zigfield dancer, actor, vaudevillian, comedian, band leader, or set designer. The home is for retired folks who used to work in the entertainment industry. And while it might not be Broadway, the footlights are still burning. Here's Waiting for Godot in New Jersey.
11: Where did we start at the 1205. Uh-oh, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> Let, let's go. We can't. Why not? We're waiting for Godot. Oh, are you sure it was here? He said, by the tree. Do you see any others? What is it? I don't know. A willow. Where are the leaves? must be dead. No more weeping. (laughs) Or perhaps it's not the season. Looks to me like a bush. A shrub. A bush. What are you insinuating, that we've come to the wrong place? Well, he should be here. He didn't say for sure he'd come. Well, I'll tell you. As long as there's a telephone, no actor is ever retired.
8: Actors from home, how can I help
3: you? Sure, hold on one second.
11: I hope you're not going to be too depressed uh, coming to the nursing home. My name is Bill Story. I've been around a long time. I'm 83 years old, and I've been in the theater since I was 17. You can figure that out.
12: (laughs) My name is Minette Vincent O'Gorek. Minette Vincent was my professional name. My
11: name is Alex Reed.
13: My name is Aideen O'Kelly. We're in the actor's home in Englewood, New Jersey. When I came here about two and a half years ago, I didn't want to be here. It's not home, can't be. Home is where my spirit is. You see, I'm an actor, well, up to recently because my sight's going. Home was on a stage. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. That was home. What can I tell you, that was my joy.
11: No, there's nothing like the stage, nothing. Give me a part on the stage first.
13: The pleasure of just getting your feet on that stage and feeling it under you, it's quivering, you know, it's just so wonderful.
11: You know exactly when they're right with you and boy, what a great feeling that is. I go down here before every meal to the pill room. I call it uh, 42nd Street to 57th, from here to my room, which I do four or five times a day. I take uh, 13 pills a
12: day. Don't ask me what for. This is the uh, main room for shows and uh, various uh, forms of entertainment. In this particular room where we're standing now. See the lights? Listen. I, I, I hear nothing. Shh.
11: Nor I. Oh, you gave me a fright. I thought it was he. Who? Godot. Oh, so the wind in the reeds. I could have sworn I heard shouts. And why would he shout? At his horse. Oh, (laughs) this is uh, something (laughs) I don't understand. Did did, uh, you say that uh, the happy time was just like this? Exactly,
13: and it's sort of, well, having no time and all the time in the world. And as we know, we talk all the time, that every single word we utter, there's something behind it. It means something. Oh,
11: sir. Yeah, you say he was adamant about every single word. Oh, boy, dare you change a syllable.
13: No way.
14: You just told me you met Samuel Beckett.
13: Yes. We were doing um, Happy Days, and we went to Paris to meet Mr. Beckett. Oh, honestly, I'll never forget that. Here I was sitting in this room and Mr. Beckett walked in. I was so... I was enthralled. I was terrified. And you know, he's very tall and very thin. And uh, these piercing grey eyes. When I mean, you look into those, you're... Oh, Lord. I imagine you could never tell him a lie. Ever. And he says... Adian, you're going to do my play. Could you read to me? <laughs> I nearly died. And after about 20 minutes, I stopped. And he said, um, <laughs> Oh, this is all wrong. All wrong, all wrong. I was dying. Mr Beckett, What? Uh, what do I do? <laughs> he said, you're too capable. Winnie is fragile. And we tried again, and he sat down in front of me, and he read with me. I started to laugh. And he looked at me, and said, what are you laughing at? You? I said, you're so funny. Well, that was it. He loved me after that, because I got it. It was funny. I was devastated with the beauty of this man. Oh my God. Well, this is the
12: main dining room here. Very nice. We have breakfast, lunch, and dinner in here. You know, it's not a cafeteria at all. We sit down and they serve us very nicely. Food is good. So it's a nice place to be. Now, see, today is the 17th. And it's a what? Tuesday. Okay. okay.
11: He said Saturday, I think. You think? I must have made a note of it. But what Saturday? And is it Saturday? Is it not rather Sunday or Monday or Friday? It's not possible. Well, if he came yesterday and we weren't here, you may be sure that he won't come again today. But you say we were here yesterday. I may be mistaken. Well, let's stop talking for a minute, do you mind? All right. Oh, hello, Roberta. How Thank you, darling. So this is where
12: I eat with Manette. Minette Vinton was my professional name. I was a synchronized swimmer with my twin sister, the Vinton Twins. And we were the very first synchronized swimmers to travel and work professionally in water shows around the country. This was in 1950, that was 60 years ago, <laughs> or longer. Was it longer? 60 years from 1950, yes. Okay. <laughs> and we were really the first. We did a routine called Two Tired Kittens. And we swam doing movements of sleepy sleepies. dum dum Ah, ah. You know how you yawn and you put your hand up to your mouth? Well, that's what we do. We would put our hand up to our mouth and then reach out for a stroke, either a backstroke, side stroke, or front stroke. So the yawn was visible, and that was for the sleepy kittens. And we had black bathing suits and little hats with ears on them and everything. I've always heard the kittens don't like the water, but we loved it. And uh, I've asked them to put in the pool for me here, but they just haven't been forthcoming. (laughs) They said they don't have the space.
11: (laughs) I was asking if we're tied. Tied? How do you mean tied? Down. But to whom? By whom? To your man. To Godot? Tied to Godot? What an idea, no question of it, for the moment. His name is Godot?
13: I think so. Beckett was not um, a religious person. He didn't believe in God, apparently. And uh, this impossible journey towards a Godot, the person who never comes... In, in Beckett's opinion,
11: how does it end? What what is the ending? I, I was the whole. I'm not curious. I don't. I, I don't, don't remember how
13: it ended I don't. either.
5: <laughs> Aideen, do you remember any of your
10: lines from Happy Days?
13: Well, all I can tell you about that is that the the last line, which is. Uh, Da dadidi, da di di di. Hmm 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 hmm
15: hmm 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 hmm
13: hmm 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 Dee dee, 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 That's the end of the play. Oh boy. It probably was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life.
3: Waiting for Godot in New Jersey by Pike Malinowski. The story originally aired on WNYC's Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson. To hear more stories by Pike, visit thirdcoastfestival.org.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
14: Hi, I'm Jay Allison, public radio lifer, founder of Transom.org and the Public Radio Exchange and other public radio type things. If you like Third Coast ReSound, and it is a great place for hearing stories that you won't find anywhere else, you might be interested in hearing the bigger picture, to mix metaphors, and I suggest you check out thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can arrange to have new documentaries sent to you every other week, find out about listening events and you can even support them if you're that kind of person and i hope you are it's thirdcoastfestival.org thanks
3: chicago all right let's see what we got Found male black-and-white spotted large dog.
2: Lost. Military ID card and wedding ring.
3: Keys lost in Wrigleyville. Found blue ball. Lost
2: Military ID card and wedding ring were lost at U.S. Cellular Field during a game on June 24th. Kitten,
3: iPhone.
2: Any information on the whereabouts of these items would be much appreciated.
3: When a depressed city empties out, factories closing, stores boarding up, friends and neighbors migrating elsewhere, a shadow of the once vibrant place remains. Gary, Indiana, was named after the founding chairman of U.S. Steel, Albert H. Gary. And, as you might have guessed, the town's history has been closely intertwined with the rise and fall of the steel industry. When it boomed, Gary boomed. And when it busted, well... So did the city. Producer Robin Aymer collected stories and impressions of Gary's semi-abandoned downtown. Hello, Gary. Do you read, Gary? She uh, focused, focused on Gary. the once glamorous Palace Theater, where the Jackson Five, Gary's second-largest export, used to perform. Where's Gary? Has anyone seen Gary?
8: Well, the thing about Gary, Indiana, uh, at first that I noticed, I was so occupied um, elsewhere because I had to use the bathroom. So I was just like, oh, really, really interesting. But, oh, oh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And then we stopped there, and then you were inside for a while, and I kind of began to put the pieces together of of what it was that was off-putting about the city. and Not not off-putting as in a way I didn't like it, but off put it in a way of I was trying to figure out what it was that was was foreign to me or didn't make sense, and I, I think what it was is that it, it reminded me of a lot of former industrial New England towns where you'll have the infrastructure of, like, the shops and the sidewalks, and there might be, like, abandoned street furniture and everything and everything is kind of like laid out in a way that is is really like logical and and, and welcoming to a lot of pedestrian activity, but there wasn't any. And it also seemed like it was sort of in this this time warp because there were a lot of displays of the stores that that were very dated. And so it had this feeling of an abandoned town from like 1970. And I guess the culminating point of that was when we saw the Jackson 5 um, marquee at that theater. The Jackson 5 sign was really interesting because I, I have this like love for Jackson 5, and growing up I used to watch the Jackson 5 cartoon. So when I saw that marquee, at first, when I looked at it, it didn't make sense to me because we were driving to the KFC, I think what like we saw it in the distance, and it had said Jack and... I've I, or something like that and I think one of the letters on the marquee was off kilter and so it was kind of like hanging at the bottom so I felt like I was playing Wheel of Fortune and it was like that part when Vanna White has to like you know like you, you guess like the letters and then Vanna White turns them around and you win or you don't but um, what I was supposed to have said in my mind was Jackson 5 tonight. And then when I was hanging out waiting for you uh, at the KFC, I was kind of like, oh, wait a minute. Like, Michael Jackson did his solo career in, like, 79. And that was when he had his first musical video. And I think I learned one time on VH1. I think that was, like, one of the first music videos. And it was the one where he's dancing around, and they show the pictures of his feet. And it's, like, he's kind of, like, floating in this, like, black space of technicolor. color. I just thought, like, wow, that's a long time ago. Like. Has it been out there that long? Have they had some kind of reunion tour in the early 80s? Did the town shut down before that happened? Like before, you know, he had his his solo career? Because that's like before I was born and I'm 26. So that's 28 years ago that that sign has been uh, hard to read, falling apart, marquee.
16: that Dillinger escaped from the Crown Point Jail. You don't know that story. All right, Dillinger was a well-known hoodlum. They finally killed him in Chicago at a, one of the Rialto Theater, I think it was, something like that. And I had a date with one of the engineers from WIND. We went to the Palace Theater, and uh, when the show was out, of course, we, we went by bus because uh, cars were kind of a, a luxury, really. It was in the early 30s, right after the Depression in 29. So we couldn't uh, catch the bus. We'd missed it by a few minutes. So the, uh, the, well, the station itself was in the bank building at Fifth and Broadway. So we said, well, let's go up and wait there because it was an hour for the next bus. So when we got up there, it all had broken loose because of this monumental escape from the Crown Point jail by this real well-known Poodle Dillinger, and uh, the guy that was on duty needed to go to Crown Point, and would my date take over the Ford, and he said yes, and then he looked at me and said, but what about you? I said, well, I can't go home till the next bus. He said, well, maybe by that time it'll break. I went down into the kind of a little area and sat down, went to sleep, the next thing I knew it was four o'clock in the morning. Now I'm a, just, you know, practically a high schooler. You're not really allowed out that late, but he brought, one, another engineer came on and he brought me home. So the next morning, mother was in the kitchen when I came downstairs, and I said, did you hear me come home? She said, no, what time did you come home? I said, well, it was 4 o'clock this morning. She said, what? So I told her what happened, and she said, well, you're all right. I said, oh, yes, I'm fine. But uh, that was a big deal in those days to have a man break out of the Crown Point Jail.
10: About the prettiest uh, theater we had in Gary at that time. What was nicer about it was like the well, r- they had ruby a red carpet, or uh, they had nice carpet. Uh, the entrance had a lot of designs in it. The outside had that marquee. Was, uh, there's none like it. The marquee was resembled the one for the Chicago theater back then, fifty years ago. And then the grand was right across the street, and the comparison was like, uh, you know, with <laughs> yeah, none whatsoever, like a Volkswagen and a Cadillac. <laughs> I've been uh, living in Gary since 1945, and my uh, late wife and I used to go there on Sundays back in the 50s after we leave church. We had to go to church so we could go to the Palace Theater and, uh, at that time and uh, see whatever shows were on. And that was almost every Sunday. Did he have cartoons all? No, we didn't see the cartoons much at the palace. That was more of a the better the movie shows. It. That was more like Roy Rogers. But they didn't show a lot of cowboys, I don't think, at the palace back in then. It was more of the love stories and more of the... It uh, so was light. a theater that you would bring a date for Then more than it would be just to come in and watch a movie. It was... Uh, Kind of like this is where the you're gonna get your big move going. It was a nice place yeah. to go, and you felt comfortable yeah. there. And it was a it was a very nice place, and it was a, attractive at that time back then. It was one of the prettiest shows in town. Hello, Gary. Do
1: you read Gary? Uh, we're looking for Gary. Copy,
4: Gary. Yeah. Has anyone, Has anyone seen Gary?
5: So when you go in these buildings, like, how do you get in? I mean, imagine that the front door isn't just open. It's not like they're inviting people to walk inside, right?
1: Well, I want to be careful how I phrase this. I don't go into any building, basically, that I can't just walk in. As far as getting into the buildings in Gary, Indiana, I would have to honestly say that, yeah, most of them are wide open. Most of those buildings, they're in such a state of disrepair that if there's not a window or a door, there's almost guaranteed to be a massive hole or some sort of other entrance where you can basically just walk in it was a very bright day so the first thing you do when you walk in is it's just pitch black and even the flashlights it takes a while for your eyes to adjust and i remember walking in and basically standing at the stage side looking out and as my eyes come into focus just massive hulking you know, theater, and looking from the stage angle up towards the seats and just realizing how how gigantic this place is.
5: How gigantic is it? Can you try and describe it?
1: Uh, well, I, I guess I've read it's 2,500 to 3,000 seats, but it was, you know, typical, I guess, of the large movie theaters of the day where they were just, you know, single balcony that would hold, you know, a large amount of the, uh, the crowd and then the seats. But the part that, that, to me, that made it look even larger was that Just about all the seats have been torn out, so you're just seeing this big open space where, you know, you walk into a theater, you got seats. You know, you're kind of the, it kind of breaks up everything. But just seeing it and wondering, you know, where did everything go? You know, a lot of them are there, but a lot of them are gone.
5: So, but what kind of shape is stuff in? Like, had it been well preserved, or was it pretty messed up?
1: Uh, unfortunately, that theater is pretty much destroyed in my opinion there's very little plaster work left the roof has gaping holes and the last few times that i've been there the holes just seem to be getting larger and larger all the uh wire framing for the plaster is bare basically and coming down on its own i uh went up to the you know projection booths the balconies and it's really like i said just beyond saving in my opinion it's just so trashed there's no railings Uh, the stairs are very dangerous. I would guess that, from what I saw, the way some of the uh, materials were piled up that somebody was trying to salvage and possibly save some of the, uh, the plaster work, there's a spot in the front lobby, you know, where you'd come in and buy your ticket, where there was actually some sizable chunks of the plaster still there and seeing how the colors and how it was painted and, you know, seeing some little just fraction of what it would've looked like. You know, while it was still in operation, even though it would have been towards the end, and they might have done some cheesier type of repairs or paint jobs, just trying to get an idea of what it would have looked like and what it would have been like to go there and and see a show.
5: So did you take anything from the theater? Do you ever take seven buildings?
1: Uh, no, I didn't. There's really nothing to take from the Palace Theater. The thing I noticed in Gary is there's really nothing to take from any of those buildings. Um, they've been abandoned for so long that basically everything significant's been taken. In fact, a good example is that there's a hotel, actually, that encompasses the outside of the theater. I think the second and third story. And because the theater's in such a state of disrepair, you can walk through holes in the walls to get into the hotel side or apartment building side, every single door, and there's just dozens and dozens of apartments, all the doorknobs and lock sets have been cut out. I mean, you could tell somebody went in there and sawed them all out. Bigger pieces of, you know, limestone carvings or whatever people have helped themselves to. Uh, The church, uh, City Methodist Church is a good example of that, where there was just gigantic limestone carvings, and you can see where a lot of them been taken, and others that are just so huge, people tried to get them out of the building. and They couldn't quite get them out, so they just left them, you know, in the middle of a hallway or you know, top of a staircase or whatever.
6: What was the real reason they closed the palace And Was it just well, it was structural, just, just like that water?
10: That. Well, uh, the downtown didn't have the business, I guess, and uh, the, uh, all the theaters, they were down to one or two, and the palace was one of the last ones. Then they remodeled it, and uh, it had only had special shows. I remember they had the Jackson 5 there. Uh, that was a special show a long time ago. The marquee stayed up for year, year uh, on the marquee for years after that show because that it was, was a live show, a live special show after the theater, had closed, but they had remodeled and opened it up, and that was one of the few shows that was there. Then after they remodeled, they started doing theater then. It, that didn't last too long because the downtown just just tried uh, something
0: new and it couldn't
10: hook it huh well the whole downtown you see what it is oh, yeah. now compared to what it was then people and, too uh, scared to go down yeah well it wasn't so much scared it's just the stores moved out everybody went to Maryville, the shopping malls you know they had malls outside of yeah. the city and everybody was going to the malls and uh that's where that's where it was uh, because i remember fellas i worked with years ago Thursday nights and Monday nights, uh, they knew uh, their parents were going to take them downtown Gary for shopping. Uh, Crown Point was the county seat, but Gary was the center. Hello Gary, do you read
4: Gary? Uh, The reason they have the sign-up that says Jackson 5 tonight, it's not like that's been around since the early 70s. It actually came in the uh, the late 1990s. It's been around for about eight or nine years since the Miss USA competition came to Gary. Donald Trump, when he owned the casino there, he also owns the rights to the Miss USA pageant, uh, which is kind of like the sort of semi-poor cousin of the Miss America pageant that was originally held in at Atlantic City. And... As part of the deal, actually, for Trump to get the casino license, he agreed to bring the pageant there for two years to the Genesis Center in uh, in Gary, Indiana, which is just down the block from the Palace Theater, and and it's just down uh, the block from from Broadway, where you see all of those abandoned buildings. Before the uh, the pageant came in, there was a sort of a sprucing-up effort. Couldn't actually get businesses in there, but they went through and they painted a lot of the storefronts. Put uh, put up marquees.
5: So to prepare for the pageant, they were trying to spruce up Broadway right? by was... like making it look like there was actually activity and life and color to these buildings right. that were actually pretty much shut down.
4: Well, you had all these contestants that were going up and down Broadway. Uh, there were actually no hotels in Gary, especially at the time, um, so there was no place for them to really stay in Gary, but they did go in and out of the Genesis Center there, which is right across from City Hall. And you did have camera crews coming in, so you needed something, I suppose, to to make it look like, um, you know, something was going on there.
5: So wait, there's no hotels in Gary? Uh,
4: There is a hotel now. There's a hotel that was uh, built by Trump and the casino, and that's really it.
5: But there weren't any hotels at the time?
4: No, there were no hotels at the time. Uh, I think the Interstate Motel along, uh, along 20 was the last motel in Gary. There are no movie theaters at this point in Gary. So. There's none, none at all. There are none at all. Crossroads was the last one that uh, way down on Broadway, close to Miraville. It closed a couple of years ago. The chain that owned it, I think, went under, and then there was a private operator for there for a little while, but then they went under as well. There are no major supermarket chains in Gary either. You know, there. Other than sections of, of Miller and close to Maryville, border, there, there's there's not a tremendous amount of economic activity going on here. It's, a, it's quite a, a turnaround case.
3: That was Ghosts of Gary by Robin Amer. To hear more of Robin's stories about cities in transition, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on Resound.
2: Misplaced bike.
8: Lost Chihuahua, 13 years old with a limp. Please help.
2: My son left his bike unattended and it was stolen.
8: Her name is Apricot. She also responds to Toddy.
2: If anyone knows who picked it up and could contact us, it would be greatly appreciated. I've been laid off and have been struggling to keep my head above water, so I can't get him a new one. Thank you. Thanks.
3: You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. Tell us what you've lost or found. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Support for ReSound comes from Smoke Barbecue, serving authentic, slow-smoked barbecue and homemade sides. Smoke caters events of all types and sizes throughout the Chicagoland area all year round. Check out their website at smokebbq.com. That's S-M-O-Q-U-E-B-B-Q dot Support also comes from Busy Beaver Button Company, your source for custom buttons, magnets, and bottle openers. All products proudly made in Chicago. Order online at busybeaver.net. Many stories are simply lost to the past small tales that might be a footnote in a textbook, or anecdotes that escape the record altogether. Luckily for us, producer Nate DeMeo loves to unearth just such tidbits. This one begins in a little town in upstate New York in the 1840s, where two young sisters have just discovered a special talent.
14: People said the house was haunted, and that was even before the two girls started talking to the dead. Kate Fox was 11, her older sister Margaret was just about marrying age, she was 14, when they moved into the little house in the Nothing Village, 40 miles east of Rochester, New York. The girls had moved around a lot in their short lives, particularly in the last several years since their mom left their dad, when dad's drinking got to be too much. But now they're all together again. Their father seemed to be on the wagon for good this time, and he had found enough work shoeing horses to afford the rent in the little house in Hydesville and he probably got a pretty good deal. What with the ghost and all. Their neighbors would talk about the traveling salesman who had been invited inside years before and was never heard from again. Never heard from, that is, until one night in March of 1848, when Mr. and Mrs. Fox first heard the strange sounds coming from somewhere behind the living room wall. Some nights it would sound like knocking, other nights like furniture moving, and it always seemed to be coming from the bedroom their daughters shared. Their parents would run in, hoping to catch them mid-prank. But when they opened the door, the girls would be fast asleep. And they didn't believe that their daughters could be tricking them. These were just girls. But they were tricking them. What started with a little tap-tapping on the walls and tiptoeing back into bed, a hand over a mouth, a face in a pillow suppressing giggles, got more and more sophisticated as the nights went on. The sisters found that if they tied twine around an apple and tossed it across the room and quickly reeled it back in. The apple would skitter and skip along the floor and ricochet against the walls and furniture and sound an awful lot like the restless wandering of a murdered door-to-door salesman. And on the night of March 31st, the Fox sisters revealed the latest in their growing repertoire of ghost simulation techniques. They called their mother into the room and told her that Kate had made contact with the spirit. She then snapped her fingers once And they heard a tap in response she snapped twice and it tapped twice the next night the foxes and all of their neighbors squeezed into the girls candlelit room and waited for the spirit at dawn the audience slipped out of the house convinced that they had just spent the night in the presence of a dead man and two girls with incredible powers mr and mrs fox were scared Their daughters could not stay in that room anymore, so they sent them to live with their older sister Leah and her family. Leah was responsible. She'd look after them. But they found that the ghost followed the girls, and Leah found an opportunity. Before long, thanks to Leah's management, the Fox sisters were selling out a 400-seat theater in Rochester. By 1850, the then 13-year-old Kate and the 16-year-old Margaret were the toast of New York City. People would wait in line for hours to buy tickets to see them, so they could ask the sisters to ask the spirit for word of their dead loved ones on the other side. The rich and famous would come backstage to meet the girls. The newspaper man Horace Greeley took them under his wing and introduced them to private clients, who would pay the sisters to introduce them to the departed. Greeley also introduced them to New York nightlife, to the wine and whiskey that had nearly drowned their alcoholic father and destroyed their family. And in the pages of his newspaper, Greeley introduced the Fox sisters to the world. There were other mediums. There had been many other people who claimed to speak to the dead. But there was something about these sisters that people believed. They were innocent, pretty girls. And they were very, very good at what they were doing. They kept submitting to the challenges of skeptics and kept passing every test. Even people who were utterly convinced that this was all a trick couldn't explain how they did it. And everyone else, they wanted to believe. This was the 1850s. People just died all the time from diseases and minor flus and infections, things that don't kill us now. Their family members, their friends, their kids would die in childbirth in accidents at work and at home why wouldn't they want to believe that those they loved weren't gone? That those they lost could be found? Soon people were holding seances like we hold dinner parties. They were putting their faith in tarot readers and mystics. Some were just scam artists, others were just wrong. They were just seeing things that weren't there. But all of them together were changing America and the way its people thought about death and life. And this modern spiritualism, that was Greeley's phrase, stayed near the center of American life for decades to come, even as it left the sisters who started it all behind. On October 21st, 1888, a 54-year-old Margaret Fox sat on the stage of the New York Academy of Music in front of 2,000 paying customers, and she spoke to the dead, and then she showed the audience how she spoke to the dead. She had recently lost her appetite for the whole business, And she wanted to get back at her older sister, Leah, whom she believed had been taking too big of a cut for years. So she told the people in the theater about how, 40 years earlier, back in that little house in that nothing town, after a few nights of knocking and tiptoeing and tying strings to apples, she and her little sister realized that they could both crack their toes. They could just tense their feet and there would be this sound. And they found that no one could tell that they were doing it. And so people actually believed they were talking to the dead. And that was fun. She told them how they were happy to find out that that weird little sound could carry all the way to the back of a big theater. She told them how later, when they were famous and fancy people would come to their fancy apartment on 42nd Street, a customer could be sitting all the way across the room from Margaret or Kate. And one of them would crack her toe and the customer would be sure she was just tapped on the shoulder because sounds are hard to place in space and because you'll pretty much believe anything if you really want to believe it she revealed all of that but not everything there were some things that were private some things that maybe she didn't even understand herself so she didn't tell them about how both she and her little sister started to unravel not long after Horace Greeley introduced them to the world into worldly things like power and wealth and wine Things that had brought down people far better prepared for them than two kids from way upstate. She didn't tell them about how she and her sister struggled under the growing weight of their shared secret. She didn't talk about the times that Kate went further and further with her claims, moving beyond toe crack conversations to moving furniture, to making ghostly hands appear out of thin air, at least in the minds of desperate believers, or how she couldn't be sure how much her increasingly erratic sister believed her own nonsense. And that night in the theater, at the age of 54, she certainly didn't tell them about the time she tested her own belief. In 1852, the fame and money and parties brought a man named Elijah Kent Kane to one of her seances. She was 18, he was 32, and handsome, and a celebrated Arctic explorer. So she fell in love with him. And he loved her, but he didn't love her profession. He was Catholic and his family was very Catholic. And there was no way they were going to approve a union between their God-fearing son and this godless woman who was spreading blasphemy. So she gave it up and she and Cain began an affair. And they were happy for a few years. And she was sure a marriage proposal would come any day until the scurvy Cain had been fighting for years finally killed him in 1857. Margaret didn't tell the audience how she broke down one night, despondent and alone. And tried to contact her dead love how she tried to do for real what she had spent the last decade pretending to do she didn't tell them how she called out to him and how he didn't call back and how she sat in the dark knowing that he never would and knowing that she would never be able to feel the comfort that the people who paid to see the sisters felt when they heard that their loved ones were at peace or that they had been forgiven Or that they were always the one. Of course they were. Or that they would never be forgotten. Kate and Margaret Fox weren't forgotten. But at the times of their deaths, they weren't remembered fondly. Each died poor, neither living to see 50. The people who still clung to spiritualism weren't glad to see them go. And the people who never believed, they were too. Now there's a postscript here that really can't be resisted. And you can do with it what you will. In 1904, they tore down that little house in that nothing town. And inside one of the walls, near what had been the girls' room, they found the skeleton of a man believed to be a traveling salesman who appeared to have been murdered a few years before the Fox family moved in.
3: The Sisters Fox by Nate DeMeo Check out more Little Historical Gems, courtesy of the Memory Palace podcast, at thirdcoastfestival.org.
4: Private investigator will find your lost relatives or other lost loved ones.
3: Lost father. Found blue ball. Trying to locate my father, was named John.
4: P.I. will find hard-to-locate persons, very reasonable rates.
2: Found a 16-inch blue ball rolling down Elm Street during the Wednesday night storm.
4: May even take partial barter.
3: Every once in a while, we invite musician Abraham Levitan to join us at the end of our show for a ReSound wrap-up song.
17: It's Abraham's ReSound song. It's the ReSound wrap-up song.
3: His specialty is writing songs on the spot. We give him a little more time than a spot. We give him a few days. Today's composition reflects on all of what you just heard. The story of a fading language and last words from Hopi High reminiscing and recreating in Waiting for Godot in New Jersey, A City in Decline and Ghosts of Gary, and clairvoyance pulling the wool over everyone's eyes in The Sister's Fox. His song is called Beautiful When We Were Young.
17: May you die in Act 5, Scene 3 May your kids learn the native tongue my sister and me haunt the streets of Gary We were beautiful when we were young Me and my sister, we talk to the dead We find out exactly how Sam Beckett read break into the palace we're performing live. It's the ghosts of the Jackson Fire. When our dead brothers come back, we'll all form a line. If we can speak their language, they'll let us all find. But just when they'll appear, Nobody know It's like waiting for good Joe. May you die in Act Five, Scene Three. May your kids learn the native tongue. My sister and me haunt the streets of Gary. When we were young I fell asleep in the lobby Didn't get home till four Danced in my dreams with the Dillinger's go
3: Beautiful When We Were Young, a resound wrap-up song from contributor Abraham Levitan. For more information about Abraham's projects, including his live game show, Shame That Tune, his music teaching group Piano Power, and his rock band Baby Teeth, visit ThirdCoastFestival.org. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at dojo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. So Support for Resound also comes from Kate Joyce, devoted to documentary and architectural photography, specializing in commissions and collaborations with an installation of aerial photographs currently on view at RTKL Chicago Gallery at 200 South Michigan Avenue through October 31st. More at www.kate-joyce.com. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.
2: you've been listening to the third coast podcast stay connected with us through facebook and twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org if you like what you heard today consider writing us a review on itunes or sending us a few bucks as always thanks for listening.